All right, so this week uh, we'll be looking at chapter 25 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We've been working through uh, this class for a few months now, and we're sort of approaching the end of it. There are 32 chapters. We're in chapter 25 today. So a few more weeks. We hope it's been helpful and encouraging and edifying and uh, informative as we look through um, what we as a Reformed Baptist Church would trace our theological roots back to, which is the Reformation and the 1689. So that's why we're spending such a long time going through the 1689, because we want to be informed. We want to know uh, what we believe and why we believe it and what our church uh, holds to as a Reformed Baptist Church. I think that's important for us. So as we come to this uh, chapter on marriage, uh, it's interesting, or I find it interesting at least, that the confession, it deals with uh, not just a paragraph, but a chapter on marriage. So it goes from the Holy Scriptures to the decrees of God to Christ the mediator to uh, assurance of grace and salvation and then marriage. (laughs) It seems sort of uh, left field, but it's not. And I I think part of uh, the reason for that is uh, the the, those who drew up the confession were not just sort of high theological uh, thinkers, but they were men who cared about practice as well. Uh, They cared about systematic theology and they cared about practical theology. And so seeing those things worked out in life and specifically in this area of marriage. So uh, Reformed Baptists and the Reformers had a high view of marriage. It wasn't just something that was sort of on the back burner, but it was something that was primary in their thinking. And I think you see some of that as we, or you'll see some of that as we go through this chapter. So often, I think when we think about the Reformation, we limit it to sort of the rediscovery of salvation. So in in other words, we'll say the Reformation was about salvation through uh, uh, faith alone, grace alone. Did I say that right? Grace alone through faith alone. uh, And Christ alone uh, for the glory of God alone. And we sort of leave it at that as if that's all the Reformation dealt with. But of course, that wasn't it. One of the most important gifts, I think, that were gained from the Reformation was a biblical concept of marriage. What does the Bible say about marriage? Why is marriage important? Um, How how should we think about this gift, this uh, divinely ordained gift of marriage, and how should the Bible inform how we approach it? And the confession seems to view marriage as not just a way to uh, keep the earth populated, uh, to continue having uh, children and offspring, but marriage as a divinely ordained gift from God for mutual lifelong companionship. And that's what the Reformation brought back to the surface concerning marriage. And this was somewhat radical because up until this point, the celibate monk was seen as the most spiritual person around. They were seen as sort of the peak of spirituality. Uh, And apart from that, the Roman Catholic Church didn't allow marriage for their churchmen, for those who entered uh, the priesthood. So the idea of um, marriage was seen as sort of more of a, a distraction. It was sort of seen as secondary, first and primarily, it's about um, our relationship with God, which of course it is, 
But I think in a false piety, they rejected marriage, which the Bible talks about. Beware of those who forbid marriage. They rejected marriage for the sake of, uh, I think, uh, appearing pious. And that was very common up until this point. Okay, a few more thoughts before we jump into the paragraphs. I have somewhat of an extended intro, so bear with me. I think it's important. Uh, It is interesting to note, which you'll see as we go through these paragraphs, that none of the paragraphs actually define marriage. Uh, That seems strange, but it's not really there. These paragraphs don't define marriage as being a covenant, and it doesn't define marriage as a pointer to Christ and his church. And you would uh, look at that and think it's strange. You have the 1689, which um, goes uh, to great lengths to help us to understand uh, Christ the mediator and the sovereignty of God and God's decrees. But this, uh, this chapter doesn't really uh, explicitly define what marriage is. But that's not unique to the 1689. The Savoy Declaration uh, doesn't define marriage. The Westminster Confession doesn't define marriage either. <clears throat> and other writings around that time by the reformers um, and, and other men like John Gill, which we'll talk about in a little bit, who wrote, uh, they didn't really define marriage as well. And I think part of that is because they felt that uh, the Bible was two reasons. One, the Bible was clear on what marriage is, and it's a different uh, time and context than it is now. I know for us now, as we think about a confession, we would say it would be crazy for a confession not to define what marriage is when marriage seems to be uh, defined however we want to define it. But I think there's reason for that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Okay. So, Uh, The confession not defining marriage shouldn't lead us to believe that the Reformed Baptists had a low view of marriage. John Gill, who was a particular Baptist in the 18th century, he said this. And I think I got my slide working this morning. Somebody prayed for me. Maybe not. Let's see. Yes. Somebody prayed. Thank you for whoever prayed. Okay, so John Gill says, a husband's love for his wife, first of all, must be superior to the love he has for any other creature. His love for her, therefore, must supersede love for neighbor, parent, or child, because a man's wife is himself, and loving her is loving himself, her being the other part of himself. So a, a strong view and articulation of marriage. He also said, there are, as it were, they are, as it were, husband and wife, glued together to make but one. A husband's love should be rooted in delight. He should take pleasure in his wife's, this is what he says, his wife's person, company, and conversation. This is so because Christ's delight in his church. He says, our, our, this understanding he has of marriage as um, a a husband taking delight in his wife's uh, person, company, and person, he says that's rooted in Christ's love for his bride, Christ's love for his church. And so you can hear this pastor's desire to communicate the weight and importance of God's gift of Christian marriage. What he said then seems to uh, hold marriage in a higher regard than a lot of pastors today, actually. 
Um, and it's just really important. Another Baptist who had a high regard for marriage was a general Baptist named Thomas Grantham. The general Baptists uh, were distinct from uh, Reformed or Calvinistic Baptists or Particular Baptists because Particular Baptists believed in particular redemption, limited atonement, and General Baptists did not. So Thomas Grantham, he wrote um, what many say is actually the first systematic theology by a Baptist. Uh, and this is what he wrote on marriage. And some of it's old English, but listen to what he says here. He says, it is an unsupportable sorrow when a woman has forsaken all relations in the world to consort or partner with her husband and then finds not his heart with her. This is called, he says, a treacherous dealing uh, a repro and reproved by the prophet Malachi uh, in Malachi 2, 14 and 15. He that puts his wife out of his affection deals no better than he that divorces her. He that puts his wife out of his affection deals no better than he that divorces her. This want of love between husband and wife is a grievous iniquity, a treasonable impiety, hateful in the sight of God. And yet it is that which Satan prevails to ensnare men with, to the provoking of the majesty of heaven against them, and to the evil example to their families, and to the perdition of their own souls. He says, God will be avenged on this generation for this iniquity. I mean, that's heavy. He's talking about marriage. <laughs> He's talking about marriage and a man being bound to his wife and a wife being bound to her husband. So obviously Baptists had a high view of marriage, a general Baptist and particular Baptist. And so marriage was actually held in very high esteem amongst Baptists and the reformers in the 16th century. <clears throat> okay, so with that being said, let's try to define marriage before we jump into the confession. So Jay Adams, he used a short phrase to define marriage. He says that it's a covenant of companionship. Simple phrase. He says marriage is a covenant of companionship. And Sam Waldron in his commentary sort of takes that a little further. And he says that marriage is a public and formal promise by a man and a woman to each other, which brings them into marriage union. <clears throat> and this union, he says, intended to provide them with multi-dimensional life companionships. Multi-dimensional life companionship. <clears throat> So today, Reformed Baptists still have a high view of marriage. And I think that definition is good. Okay, with that being said, uh, let's jump into paragraph one. So again, if you don't have a handout, it's on the back table. And let's jump into paragraph one. So anyone who has it and cares to read, feel free to read it for us. Thank you. So this um, short paragraph, when many of these paragraphs are, are, are shorter, but this short paragraph is only two sentences, and it starts by talking about who should marry, who should marry, and specifically a man and a woman. It also addresses 
polygamy, taking more than one spouse at a time. And this was something that was important for the English Baptists to address. Why? Because during this time, they were accused of being Anabaptists, and specifically Anabaptist radicals. And Anabaptist radicals practiced polygamy. Radical continental Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation were radical Baptists who didn't believe the Reformation was taken far enough. Through force and other means, they came, um, they came to a bad interpretation of, of scripture. And that bad interpretation caused them to uh, adopt uh, practices and beliefs that were unhelpful and unbiblical. Uh, one of those was polygamy. So Calvinistic Baptists were happy to distance themselves from the radical Anabaptists. And they did that by showing their union with their brothers um, who drew up the Westminster Confession. So if you look at this chapter on marriage and you look at it in the 1689 and the Westminster, they're identical, they're word for word. Um, and scripture references for this paragraph, um, they're clear in saying that marriage ought to be monogamous between one man and one woman. Marriage ought to be between one man and one woman. Let me have someone read Genesis 2.24 for us. <clears throat> Thank you. And the Lord himself, <clears throat> speaking to some Pharisees about divorce, reaffirms Genesis. In Matthew 19, 5 to 6, uh, and Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. <clears throat> so <clears throat> obviously, uh, I think from this, this passages here, Matthew 19, it's two becoming one. It's a simple principle, not more than two becoming less than two, uh, or not, more, not, not six becoming four, or ten becoming three, which it, it's happened. I'm, I'm not joking. <laughs> but he's two becoming one. Um, it's just math. Okay, although it's not stated plainly in this paragraph, the Baptists were affirming the uh, continuity and the consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament concerning sexuality and sexual ethics. So when we talk about marriage and it's being monogamous, it's common for us to go directly to people like Abraham or Jacob or Solomon in the Old Testament. And of course, the, uh, the, the thought is they had multiple wives. Why is it wrong for us to have multiple wives? It, the Lord seemed to be okay with it then. Why is he not okay with it now? But that question, and I think line of thinking, assumes that the Lord was okay with it. And it assumes that it was right for them. And I think the Bible is clear that it was not. So the Bible never affirms polygamy or bigamy or, or anything like that. God never gives his stamp of approval to multiple wives or husbands. That type of behavior never received God's fatherly grin as if he was okay with it. It actually provoked uh, the opposite. It provoked God's anger and God's wrath and his judgment. 
Uh, and you see that in 2 Samuel 12. And we have to remember, I think when we think about this, to think about it helpfully and to articulate it to people helpfully who may struggle here, um, we have to remember that <clears throat> the narratives of scripture often articulate to us in two tones. So one tone is descriptive and the other tone is prescriptive. One is descriptive, the other is prescriptive. The Bible will tell us what did happen, uh, but not necessarily what should happen. So polygamy did actually violate God's law for marriage. So when scripture reveals the patriarchs with all of their sins, it's not, it's, it's not to, um, to prescribe that as something we should do. It's actually to warn us of their failures and ultimately to point to Christ, who is the husband of his one bride, the church. Again, God never gives his stamp of approval to that. <clears throat> and so we have to recognize and maintain this, these two distinctions, these two tones of scripture, uh, lest we read scripture and we're led to bad conclusions about what marriage is and we're led into bad practices within marriage. And again, that happens a lot today. It's so funny when I'm usually uh, about to teach on a chapter, just in life and for the articles I read or Facebook, you should stay off of Facebook, it's horrible. But I was on there this, these past couple of weeks and I saw this article, um, I think it was NBC or something with this guy who had multiple um, wives. And the thing is, uh, it, it's helpful when, when talking to people to not assume that they're uh, idiots or haven't thought through something that they hold to. Even if they're wrong, uh, they probably thought through it. And so this guy, he's given this uh, theological explanation of why it was okay to have multiple wives. And his, his wives were, you know, happily there with him, you know, lined up beside him as he's given this explanation and wholeheartedly agreeing with him. And uh, yes, there's a, there's a heart issue there, but he's been misinformed. He's come to scripture and he's walked away with a bad interpretation of it. And so as we talk to people, it's, it, it's good to have these conversations and I don't know if you've ever talked to somebody who's a, a polygamist, that'd be an interesting conversation. Usually you don't see those people at Lake Yola, you know, walking with kids and stuff. But if you do, um, it's good to be able to have these conversations with them and explain some of these things so that the Lord may perhaps grant them repentance um, because it is wrong. <clears throat> okay, let's jump down to paragraph two and have someone read that for us. <laughs> they won't live forever. <laughs> Thank you, love. <clears throat> Kareem, sorry. Um, okay, so this paragraph basically communicates um, the biblical purposes for marriage. Uh, paragraph one says, who should marry? Paragraph two goes into the biblical purposes for marriage. And though it's another short and simple paragraph, it's actually saying something that's pretty unique during this time. <clears throat> For instance, this paragraph says that having children is one purpose of marriage, but it's not the only purpose of marriage. It's saying that marriage has other purposes too. And what are they? The paragraph says the mutual help 
of each spouse and the prevention of immorality. In other words, it's a solution to lust. So let's, let's talk about this first purpose before we, before we go there. This first purpose for marriage. The confession says that it was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. Again, when we consider what was usually articulated uh, in theological discussions concerning marriage in the 17th century, the, the confession seems to go beyond that and say that marriage has more than uh, just the purpose of child rearing, but involved in this is companionship. <clears throat> and it articulates this when it talks about the purposes of marriage. Uh, this paragraph actually seems to be built upon Thomas Cranmer's marriage service in 1549. In that marriage liturgy, uh, he said something that was unique to how people usually thought about marriage. Cranmer uh, said that the purpose of matrimony was this. Listen to what he says, and this is really counterculture for this time. He says the purpose of matri matrimony was the mutual society help and comfort of the spouses for one another. <clears throat> Mutual society, uh, help and comfort of the spouses for one another. Now, uh, of course, the German Reformation wasn't the only place and time in the world where marriage was seen as more than just a union um, uh, for more than making babies. It wasn't just here. But at this time and in this cultural context, this was indeed a resurgence of biblical marriage. <clears throat> and this part of the paragraph gives Genesis 2.15 as a proof text. All right, let me have someone read Genesis 2.18 2, for us, sorry. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Okay, thank you. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Um, for this helper suitable for him, the ESV says a helper fit for him. The NIV says a suitable helper. Uh, the NET says a companion who uh, corresponded to him. Anyone know what the NASB says? Who has an NASB? <clears throat> Y'all don't care about the NASB? I got an NASB. It says a helper suitable for him. Uh, the, King Jin the, the KJV says and help meet for him. So Matthew Poole talks about this phrase suitable for him and says, <clears throat> he says a most emphatical phrase suitable for him signifying this much, one correspondent to him suitable both to his nature and necessity, one altogether like to him in shape and constitution, disposition and affection a second half or one to be at hand and never sorry one to be at hand and near to him to stand continually before him familiar to converse with him to be always ready to help serve and comfort him or one whose eye respect and care as well as desire should be to him whose business it shall be to please and help him. So he sees all of that in a helper suitable for him. So this text explains, uh, Genesis 2.18, explains the role of wife as helper. But if you notice in the confession, in this paragraph, it actually applies that to both spouses when it says that marriage was ordained 
for the mutual help of husband and wife. So this paragraph goes on to say that marriage is for uh, the increase of mankind with legitimate offspring. So this idea was really brought out uh, by Augustine in the fourth century. He would look at Genesis 2 and interpret it uh, to be saying or interpret it in a way that we would probably disagree. But he was convinced that Eve was given to Adam solely to bear children, to have kids. Um, he really didn't see any uh, other uh, help for Adam uh, from Eve apart from that. And so partly built on Augustine's um, thought, uh, mutual help uh, that, I'm sorry, so partly built on uh, Augustine, mutual help that spouses give to each other uh, was more like a distant second or third when it came down to marriage. But the confession here uh, clearly sees marriage as more than just a union for having kids, uh, more than a machine for making babies. Um, so on the other hand, intimacy and children are both blessings in marriage. So the confession articulates that having children does have biblical support uh, in scripture as a reason for marriage, but the intimacy of sex alone in marriage is also a blessing in and of itself. <clears throat> Waldron in his commentary says that uh, intimacy in marriage cannot be seen as some kind of necessary evil for the purpose of procreation. In other words, we shouldn't see intimacy in marriage as a bad thing that God just allows us to do for the sake of keeping the earth populated. That would be a wrong and unbiblical view of intimacy, which is a gift from God. Okay? So that leads to uh, the next section here of this paragraph, which says that uh, marriage is to prevent sexual uncleanness or immorality. I was about to say immortality. Immorality is to prevent immorality. So the confession has a really down-to-earth view of the solution to lust. And this may be surprising, but uh, these men, they were pastors, they were theologians, and they were men <laughs> that cared about the word and how to, to properly uh, interpret it. But again, the confession seems to give a really uh, down-to-earth view uh, or, or solution to, to marriage. So what it's saying here is basically this. Marriage is a solution to struggles with lust. Sometimes when we think about solutions to sexual sin, we tend to think about a deep sort of groundbreaking spiritual experience that's needed. Uh, we need to go to some, some conference in Wyoming or somewhere, um, or go on like a 30-day fast or something. But uh, the confession would probably disagree with that. Um, and it's simply saying in a very straightforward way, um, Christian marriage is a biblical, divinely ordained solution to lust. And this section points to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 2 and 9, to sort of draw out uh, that, that point. So 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, uh, but because of immoralities, <clears throat> each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. But because of immoralities, each man have his own wife, each woman her own husband. And then 2 Corinthians 7, I mean, 1 Corinthians 7, 9 says, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. 
for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here, the Apostle Paul says that husbands and wives should enjoy a sexual relationship to keep them from stumbling into sin of lust. So marriage provides a satisfaction and intimacy for both spouses because it's that satisfaction that helps to keep the spouse from straying. This was important in the Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church, again, had a reputation of having priests that were celibate but not chaste. They were celibate but not chaste. They they abstained from marriage, but they were still deeply lustful. Matthew Poole says that honest matrimony is the proper remedy against these filthy practices. Simple phrase. Marriage matrimony, honest marriage matrimony is a a proper remedy to these filthy practices. I'm going to read Proverbs 5.15, which is tied into this. I'll talk about it a little bit. Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verses 15 to 18. It won't be on the screen. I'll just read it for you. You can turn there if you like. Romans, I'm sorry, why do I keep saying Romans? Proverbs 5, 15 to 18. Okay, Proverbs 5 says, uh, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, a fresh water, and fresh water from your own well. He's not talking about water. (laughs) It's true. Should Should your springs be dispersed abroad? Streams of water in the streets? It's a rhetorical question, the answer is no. Verse 17, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. So it's clear here, I think when we understand the context, that the principle is the same as 1 Corinthians 7, actually. Um, let the man, the, the husband and the wife, uh, take pleasure and satisfaction in their own spouse. Let not your waters be spread abroad. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, Poole goes on to say, Matthew Poole, uh, content thyself with those delights which God alloweth thee, with the sober use of marriage, with the sober use of the marriage bed. Why should thou ramble hither and thither? Why should we go to and fro, trespassing against God and men to steal their waters, which thou mightest freely take out of thine own cistern and well? The confession seems to have something similar in mind um, when it says that um, marriage is given Uh, For, yes, the benefit of companionship and children, but there is intimacy there that has benefit for the Christian and Christian marriage. Okay, let's jump down to paragraph three. Okay, let's go ahead and read that, whoever wants to read it for us. Should the godly be unequally yoked by marrying those who lives or hold to them who 
Okay, thank you. So this paragraph um, expresses a socially radical view, I think, of marriage by saying that it's lawful for all sorts of people to marry based upon mutual consent. So Sam Waldron says, the general rule of the confession here is liberty. That is, all kinds of people may marry if they so choose, presumably from across all ethnicities, cultures, classes, and countries. Many would accuse the confession of the contrary. This paragraph is implying that any other restriction to marriage is unbiblical. Any other restriction outside of the restriction that a believer should not marry an unbeliever, any other restriction is unbiblical. So whether it's ethnicity, social status, or class, it's unbiblical if it's a restriction. Those restrictions are unbiblical. So the only limit is that one should marry in the Lord. In other words, it's sinful for a Christian to marry anyone who's not a Christian. An unbeliever or an idolater or someone who leads an evil life, we should not be unequally yoked with. So this phrase unequally yoked comes from 2 Corinthians 6.14, which the paragraph doesn't reference, but it does point to 1 Corinthians 7.39, which says this. <clears throat> a wife is bound as, uh, as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to marry uh, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So Paul tells this widow that she is free to marry anybody as long as they are in the Lord or a Christian. So as we think through this, it's wise for us to avoid temptations to violate this command. This means that singles have to guard themselves from seeking companionship with unconverted people. It's wise to guard our affections from that temptation. And of course, we're not talking about being friends with unbelievers. The context here is a uh, romantic relationship with an unbeliever or tending towards that. We have to guard our hearts from that. <clears throat> and that practice happens way before marriage. Usually the believer doesn't come to a place where they're considering a proposal or an engagement overnight. That temptation takes place in the heart long before then. And the way, uh, <clears throat> and the way, before, and way before feelings and affections are given over to an unbeliever, the single person has to think through and consider uh, biblically, the profession of someone of the opposite sex to see if they are in God's will in that way with, marriage, with uh, pursuing someone who's a believer. And that should not be done um, before they entangle themselves in a, rom a romantic relationship. So all that to say, singles or uh, widowed persons who are guest single, if you are considering a relationship with a person, <clears throat> you have to uh, guard yourself from uh, uh, situations or affections that uh, tend towards uh, things that are only appropriate in marriage between a believer and a believer. It can be very easy to be led astray. I've, I've had uh, conversations with, with, with brothers um, over the past years, just the, the, the temptation in being single to, uh, to pursue someone who there may be a lot of similarities, 
but the most foundational and important thing that they ought to have in common is not there. Um, and you just have to be careful and to guard yourself from those things. Guard your heart in that way from, from doing those things. Because find out what sneakers Joseph used to run. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're probably Nikes or some super sandal. Um, okay, uh, for the sake of time, let's jump down. We've got one more paragraph that I want to try and get through. <clears throat> Uh, let's jump down to, actually, let me read um, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18 first. <clears throat> actually, this first. Proverbs 1.10, my sin, if sinners, my son, <laughs> if sinners entice you, do not consent. Right. Simple principle, run. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 14 to 17, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Bilal? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Um, the Bible is not gray on that, that area. Okay, paragraph four. Let me have someone read that for us. Marriage should not occur within the degrees of blood relationship or kinship that are forbidden in the word. These incestuous marriages can never be made lawful so that the individuals may live together as husband and wife by any human law or consent of the parties involved. Okay, thank you. So this fourth and final paragraph on marriage says that two people of blood relation should not marry. Uh, it defines this unlawful marriage as incest. <clears throat> this is something that's easy for us to, to agree with. Uh, incest is clearly forbidden from the law of Moses onward. So prior to Sinai, it wasn't forbidden. Neither was it forbidden at creation, or else we could not have multiplied from one man and one woman. That's a theological principle in that, as one race and Adam as a federal head for all. <clears throat> so it wasn't forbidden then, but it's forbidden now. Um, but this paragraph points to Leviticus 18 first, then it specifically addresses verses 6, which I think specifically addresses verses 6 to 18. So let me have uh, someone read. Turn to Leviticus 18, and let me have someone read verses uh, 6 to 11, and then someone else verses 12 to 16. So Leviticus chapter 18, verses 6 to 11, and then 12 to 16. And when you get there, you can just start reading for us. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, <clears throat> okay. Um, you want to finish reading? You can just go to sixteen.
she is her father's brother, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, if she is her mother's brother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife, if she is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law, if she is your son's wife. You shall not uncover the nakedness, her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, if it is your brother's nakedness. Okay, thank you. It's, it's much of the same, but the Lord is going to uh, lengths to make sure that this principle and this law is understood. <clears throat> uh, uncover their nakedness is another way of saying having a sexual relationship, um, clearly. So this paragraph goes on to say that an incestuous marriage can never be made lawful. In other words, if society and, uh, as a whole says that it's okay, God still says that it's not. Um, so it, it's never okay, and it's still sinful before God. Some may say that these laws are not binding on people today. That's a common objection, um, that they were only part of the Mosaic ceremonial laws. But even Gentiles, in this context, if you continue reading, even Gentiles were judged for breaking and violating this command. So it's not just a uh, binding on, on Israel, but it was on Gentiles as well. You see that in Leviticus 18.24. Apart from that, we have New Testament passages that view this type of relationship as wrong and sinful. Mark, Mark 6 says, uh, 17 to 18, for it was Herod <clears throat> who had sent and, and seized John and bound him in prison for the, sake of the, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Same principle. And also 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for man has his father's wife. Um, again, principle is the same. Incest is wrong. You probably wonder why are you spending so much time talking about this? We know this already. It's in the confession, so I got to cover it. And it, it's important. So both of these passages make it clear that incestuous relationships are still a violation of God's law. This keeps us from assuming, one, that the Mosaic law uh, had, that has no application for us today, because it does, and we see that in this command. Uh, this also means that it's not only the Ten Commandments which are for us today. Another reason we may stumble over this idea of incest is tied to what I mentioned earlier. We say, what about Adam? Didn't Adam's first children marry their brothers and sisters? Didn't Abraham marry his sister? Well, the question, the answer to that question is obviously yes. But it's helpful for us to remember the genetic problems related to the violation of God's law. Waldron says, we have to assume that these issues, these genetic issues, did not emerge until after the time of Abraham. The genetic code became, or as the, as the genetic code became more and more corrupted, God finally and forever from that time forbid incest. It was wrong. So marriage, <clears throat> okay, that's, that's all I got on incest. Um, I'll close with this. Marriage is a divinely ordained gift that is given by God for his glory and the good of his creatures. I'll close with a quote from, quote from Richard Baxter. 
because he's solid and he says something good about marriage. He says, husband and wife must delight in the love and company of each other. And when husband and wife take pleasure in each other, it unites them in duty. It helps them with ease to do their work, to bear their burdens, and is a major part of the comfort of marriage. Reformed, our Reformed Baptist forefathers had a high view of marriage. Not just uh, Christ as the mediator, not just the decrees of God, not just the church, not just salvation, but marriage as well. And this is extremely encouraging and informing, I hope, for, for all of us, for uh, husbands as we uh, uh, live with our wives, as wives as you live with your husbands, as single men as you consider your role as a husband, as single women as you consider um, what husband, what man you ought to marry. Read the, the Baptists <laughs> in the 16th and 17th century. They were helpful and good. Okay. That's all I got for us. I'm going to pray and then we'll be dismissed into the sanctuary. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your word. Um, there are many uh, voices in our culture that speak loudly, uh, but your voice in your word is uh, clear and it is uh, what we ought to hold to and, and it's what ought to inform our thinking and our affections. And Lord, we pray that you would um, cause these things to rest on our hearts, uh, help us to continue to think biblically through the 1689 and about these subjects. Um, and I pray that you would bless us now, Lord, as we uh, move into the uh, congregation and uh, worship together as saints called by you, um, set apart by you. May you bless our time together um, and may you do these things for your glory and our good as we see it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you. Again, if you have questions, you can put them in the green box in the back. <clears throat> Richard Baxter? Yes. Yes. Richard Baxter. So, Baptist. Likely BAX. contributed to the 65. B A X T E R. No problem. What's up, bro? This? Thanks, bro. Appreciate it. I like your shirt. I like the colors. So I disagree. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. This is common. That the confession doesn't teach that marriage is a covenant. Oh, that, okay. <clears throat> because it doesn't in that chapter, but I think you conclude that from chapter 23. Okay. Because chapter 23 talks about lawful oaths as ah, worship, ah. and it describes taking an oath before the Lord, and that's exactly what happens at marriage. It just happens before that's good. you get to the chapter. Yeah, I think I read something. Um, on that, but um, uh, Ian Gary, I think, I was reading some of his uh, thoughts on 16th century and 17th century Baptist theology on marriage, and I think he mentioned something like that. Um, I don't know who he is, but he sounds solid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm gonna go back and read more, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. The language in that, in that chapter, um, <clears throat> decree, 
lawful. It's all covenant the language. Yeah. When taking an oath, which is a covenant. Yeah. And then in marriage, that's what oh, one does like before the Lord. Yeah. So it's good. It's good. Yeah, I gotta go back a, and end on my class. No, no, it was, that, uh, it was. Good. It was good. <laughs> Just, <laughs> <laughs> in that chapter, job. they don't define it. How about that? Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, but the that? confession does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Thank you.